in which our Lord directed the Apostle Paul to write to a young pastoral leader named Timothy regarding the family of God, specifically local church families like a concerned mother our Lord is concerned about the conduct and character of his children when they meet together and particularly when they met together in this ancient city called Ephesus in a numerous churches in and around the area of Ephesus 1 Timothy 3 sort of sets the tone for the first three chapters when it says, These things I write to you, so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now with time constraints in mind, I've selected just a sliver of what our Lord Jesus Christ, through the Apostle Paul, wrote in 1 Timothy the first three chapters. And I'm not going to be able to do the kind of in-depth exposition that I'm used to doing. I'm more interested in getting out some things that I think are important to get to our church, to our people, to our families, and to all of our hearts. So I'd like for you to turn, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, or if you've got a note sheet, you may want to look on that note sheet. And let's take a look at a passage of scripture that I think has some application to us today in our church as well as in our homes. The Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. The Apostle Paul wants the family of God, the church, to have character and conduct that is becoming the ever-watchful eye of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so where does he begin? He begins with the men. And he says in verse 8, I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without doubting, without wrath. I desire. That's a, a word that doesn't mean I wish. He says I'm basically... I want this to happen. I purpose for this to happen. This is an, an order, if you will, a command. That the men pray everywhere. Let me take the word everywhere, which has the idea of in every place, is literally what it translates out to be from the language of the New Testament. I want the men to pray in every place. That is, in every little house or courtyard in which people were gathering together in and around the ancient city of Ephesus, to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and to serve Him with their gifts and talents and abilities. And ultimately, I believe, the Lord Jesus Christ is writing this through Paul not just for those house churches, but for local churches around the world that we are part of here this morning as well. We're talking about churches, local churches that are gathering together to worship and honor the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word. 
Then we read, I want the men to pray. I want the men to pray. He didn't say not mankind. He wasn't including everyone. He was saying men, males. Obviously, there are other ways men should be serving in the church. But this is something maturing Christian men can and should want to do in church. And that is to audibly represent the church before God in prayer. We call it leading in public prayer. We tend to orchestrate it. We have a slot, call it pastoral prayer. In that period of time, it was probably less structured, more extemporaneous. The prayer that we often refer to as the pastoral prayer is one of the times in which we've invited various men from the church to lead or represent our church in prayer. Not just me, not just the elders, but many men in the church that are maturing and growing as Christians. Certainly this doesn't mean you have to pray all the time. For mom's sake, I'm asking, let me ask this question. What does this have to do with speaking for mom? In like manner, a godly wife and mother wants her man, her husband, her, her, the father of her children, to be a spiritual leader in the home. And that begins with prayer. Audible prayer. Husbands and fathers need to faithfully represent their family before God in prayer. It's not mom's job, guys. It's ours. And for mom's sake, I'm asking you, are you doing your job? Certainly this doesn't mean that you have to, to do all the praying all the time. Mom should pray audibly for the family. And the children should be taught to pray audibly for the family as well. Not just for their own needs, but for the needs of all the family. On our way to church, it always encouraged my heart, having my message going through my mind, and occasionally we'd come together. It usually seemed like we were in two cars, but occasionally we'd come together. And as we rode together, I was always encouraged when my wife and my children would pray for me, and for our church, and for the message for Sunday morning. Men, however, need to take the lead in prayer in their homes. We need to be the initiator and supporter of prayer. We also need to take the lead on the other side of the equation, which is hearing from God. Men, we need to ensure that our children and our family are being instructed and encouraged from the Word of God. They need to hear instruction from our lips as well as their mother's lips. That is crucial. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, Paul writes, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. We have a role, a vital role, in instructing, training, and teaching, and encouraging our children. And so many men, I think, have got the idea that this is mom's department. My job is to put bread on the table. And I come home and I'm tired and I don't want to deal with these things. But men... God says that's not the case. God says you are to deal with him. 
part of this prayer, this training and instruction in our home, in my own case, was performed usually after dinner at the dinner table. We called it our family time or our family devotions. In our family, I, I had a very heavy commitment to the church in most nights of the week. Both my wife, myself, and my kids were usually involved in the church. So the best we could usually do is to carve out maybe one or two nights a week for dinner together. And of course, we would always begin our meals with prayer, as well as praying at other times for specific needs in the family. However, on one or two nights a week, we would conclude our meals together with the time in which I would read the scripture or I'd ask the kids to read the scripture or I'd ask my wife to read the scripture and then we would talk about what the scripture said I would ask them questions I would explain it and then I would ask them to repeat what I said in their own words the kids particularly then we would talk about our great God and some of the needs that we have in our personal lives and then we would go to the Lord and we'd pray. And I'd try to teach the kids to begin praying by thanking God and thinking about the great person he is and the great things he'd done. And then we can talk about our needs to him. And after I asked one of the children to pray, then I would close in prayer. And I would alternate kids from night to night and occasionally have my wife do it because she was also praying with them at other times. How long was it? If they were younger, it would usually last 10 to 20 minutes. If they were, as they got a little older, it went up to around 20 to 40 minutes, depending on the situation, how much discussion there was, and if the passage was one of those passages that invoked a lot of controversy. And we spent some time looking at it. My wife also took time, of course, to spend with them in reading a, a devotional book. She went through a, a Bible story devotional book, I remember, and a number of other tools as well. And she also would uh, use the uh, devotional guide from uh, Radio Bible Class or Discovery Bible Class, I guess the Day of Discovery Bible Class. And uh, those were good tools for her, and she would work with the kids through that, usually in the mornings. At other times, when we were together as a family, and when I was alone with one or both of the children, I would just ask them questions about what they were learning in Awana, what they were learning in Sunday school, what they were learning at uh, Stony Brook, what their memory verses were, what those verses mean. I'd have them recite the memory verse and I'd say, what does it mean? I would take those opportunities as I was driving somewhere, talk to them, or if we were walking or hiking or doing anything like that, I used that as well. Now, in case you're thinking, hey, pastor, uh, you're pastor, that's easy for you. I didn't say you have to do it my way. I was just giving you some insights as to how we did it. Dad and Mom, there are many tools out there to help you develop your own system. Family devotional helps. Some of the ones that, uh, that I've used is, I think we've got them up on the overhead there. How to, what your child needs to know about God by Ron Rhodes is excellent. An excellent tool, just giving your kids, little children, some foundation in doctrine, Bible doctrine. And then for older children, another book called Bible Doctrines for Today by Abeka Book. 
And then the practice of wisdom by Ron Saylor and David Wilson, we actually used that in our board a few years ago as a devotional tool for our board meetings. And we went through it. It goes through the book of Proverbs by subject. A very interesting study, by the way. And then lastly, or next to last there, My Utmost for His Highest by Oswald Chambers. A real standard. And somebody was just telling me how this ministered to them and brought them to Christ. Uh, that book, and it's old, but it's very interesting, very good. In fact, my wife and I, when we started our our life together, that was one of the books that we went through in our devotions together. And then uh, Devotions for the Children's Hour by Ken Taylor. And uh, that's an excellent uh, tool that my wife used quite a bit, although she said the doctrine in it sometimes needs a little overhaul. And you can't just accept anything and say it's always going to be perfect, so you need to be on top of, the, of your game, so to speak, as a dad and as a mom, making sure that what your kids are getting is accurate and truthful. The point here is not so much the method as the fact that you, dad, and mom are taking the time to lead your family in prayer, and particularly dad, and seeing that your family is trained and instructed from your lips, as well as mom's, in the Word of God. However, this is not a role that can be played by an actor. It must be a role that is born out of a sincere devotion to our God. Anything less, and God will be repulsed, and your children will think you're hypocrites and reject what you've taught them. This is also true in the church. And so the Apostle Paul adds these words, I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands, without wrath and doubting, lifting up holy hands. In the days of the New Testament, there were a number of postures for prayer, from prostrate on the ground to kneeling to standing, to standing with hands outstretched, palms turned upwards, which spoke of God's greatness and our utter dependence upon Him. And that was probably the posture that was most common, according to the frescoes on the walls of the Roman catacombs. That was the posture that was most common among Christians in the first century. However, it was not Paul's purpose to discuss the posture of prayer. He simply called attention to a posture that was common among Christians at that time and in that location. What Paul was truly concerned about was not about the posture of prayer, but about the character of the man doing the praying. His emphasis is upon the word holy, not upon lifting up, as some Christians have confused it's lifting up holy hands in prayer, not just calling attention to the common practice of lifting up hands. It's common to lift up your hands. What was not so common was that those hands were representative of a holy life. The hands represent what we do with our life. And Paul was saying that life needs to be marked by holiness. The word holy here is not the usual word for holy, but has more the idea of devout it speaks of an intimacy with God. A life in which there are no barriers between God and ourselves. A life in which God and, and you and I have a close relationship together. A man who is a spiritual leader in his home needs to have a close, personal relationship with the Lord, with God. One of the greatest securities for a wife and a mother is to know that the man in her home her husband, the father of her children, has a close personal relationship with God because no matter how heated the argument or disagreement between her and her husband, no matter how difficult life becomes, she knows she has a companion who is trusting in God. And 
she believes that God will resolve the problems when both parties have a close personal relationship with him. So how do you know that a man has a close personal relationship with God? As a man, you may be asking, do I have that type of relationship, that kind of life? Can I say that I am really close to the Lord? Here's a test. Paul says, without wrath or anger and without doubting. The word without doubting is actually without questioning. And it is a word that uh, is often has the idea of a quarrelsomeness. Fellow men, if we are angry with someone or we have a grudge, against someone or a dispute or a quarrel with someone and we are harboring the grudges and the resentment and the bitterness that has grown out of that then we can be sure of one thing we do not have a close relationship with God we looked at that a few weeks ago when we looked at forgiveness where Jesus says if you don't forgive men their trespasses neither will your Father in Heaven forgive you that doesn't mean He'll send you to hell as His child it means that you're not going to enjoy close fellowship with Him it's one thing to lose our temper to blow our stack. It's quite another to remain in a state of anger and resentment toward another person. And if we remain in a state of anger and resentment and bitterness, then we don't have intimacy with God. And the question I'm asking is, men, why are we so angry? And if we are, we need to remove, we need to really work hard to remove the barrier between ourselves and the person we're angry with so that we can put our arms around that person and enjoy the same kind of relationship we had with them before we became angry with them. And that's true whether it's our wife or whether it's someone we work with or whether it's a, a per close personal friend, whether it's someone in the church. We need to resolve our issues with anger and the quarrelsomeness that has been a part of our life. Let me inject a word here also to sons. Because I know in speaking for mom, which is the title of the message this morning, I know she has a burden for a son. There's a special bond that I think exists between a mother and a son, just as there is between a father and a daughter. I know that mothers aren't as hard on their sons as fathers are, because we know when they're giving us the berries. And likewise with, with girls. I mean, a mother and a daughter... There's more and more tension, more clash there than there is between a father and a daughter. But there's still that special relationship. And a mother has a relationship with her son. And she's concerned about her son. What is she concerned about? Based on these principles that we've been looking at just in this passage in verse 8 of 1 Timothy chapter 2, what I would say is son's character counts. If you're a son today, whether you're 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 years old or 20 years old or 30 years old, or 60 years old, character counts. A godly mother wants more than anything for her son to have a close, personal relationship with God. She wants you to be a man who's devout. And that doesn't mean a holy Joe. But a young man that knows what it is to please the Lord and who sets out to please Him. She wants you to have a heart for God. And obviously what she wants is also what the Lord wants. Sons, it begins early in your life. Follow the example of the Lord Jesus, who at the age of 12, as the Son of God, the Creator of the universe, 
did not rebel against his parents, but submitted to them. Many preteens are prone to start the rebellion about 12, 11, 12 years old, shaking in their heart, their fist at their parents and saying, I'm going to be my own person, do what I want to do and fool with my parents. Jesus didn't do that. He submitted himself willingly to both his mother and his dad. And ultimately to God. And that is the foundation upon which a close personal relationship with God is built. It is in such a, a submission to him, to God, and to our parents, that a young man can be kept from the sin and the failure and the ultimate ruin that comes to so many young men because of youthful lust and impurity. I knew of a young man who, when it came time to talk about sexual matters in his life, his dad said, wear protection. His mother said, be pure. Guess which one spoke for God? Mom did. Friends, we live in a culture in which a lot of women and men have bought into the idea that men are nothing more than animals when it comes to their sexual appetites and they have no control. That is a lie. I told my son we have control. It won't be easy. But you need to take control of your sexual life and strive for purity. And that's what mom would say clearly too. Husbands and fathers, our God and our mom wants us to be the spiritual leader in our home and to lead in prayer. Sons, our God and our mom wants us to obey our parents, develop character and a heart for God, and strive for purity in our life. Women, and especially daughters, our God and your godly mother have something to say to you as well. It's found in the next verses, verses 8 to 9 of 1 Timothy 2. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for a woman professing godliness with good works. Hmm. I want you to notice, first of all, a parallelism that exists here. And that gives weight to what he's saying, because many people say, this, this doesn't seem like things are matching up, but they are. He says, first of all, men pray everywhere. Women adorn themselves everywhere. And the everywhere refers to in every local church setting. Remember, this is the local church family. This is family church life, family life. Men, he says, lifting up holy hands. Women, he says, in modest apparel. Men without wrath or disputings. Women with propriety and good sense. Not with braided hair, gold, or pearls, or costly clothing, but what is proper for women professing to revere God with good works. Now let's take a look at that. Men were to pray, and women were to adorn themselves. They're both, in Greek language, purpose phrases. They're identical. They stand out. If you are reading the New Testament in its own language, it would like stand out. These two match each other. And they indicate that Paul's final object of concern for men is praying in church and for women, it's their appearance in church. Now some may say to themselves, these do not seem to be equal in importance. But keep in mind where Paul ends up with the women, and that is with good works. 
So let's look more closely at what Paul is saying. He says, In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation. The word adorn themselves is the word cosmion, from which we get our word cosmetic, and it's related to the word world cosmos, and it speaks of putting something in order or of arranging something. In this case, it fittingly speaks of a woman arranging her appearance. When it comes to women adorning themselves, arranging their appearance for a gathering with the church family, the specific thing Paul has concerned about is that it be done with modesty. Just as men lift up hands in prayer, so women put on clothes and arrange their hair. This is not what Paul is specifically concerned about. What he is concerned about was that men lift up holy hands. Again, he's not talking. It's, the posture is not that important. What's important is that they lift up holy hands. What women wear, the color, what they choose, how they adorn themselves, is not that important. What's important is modesty. That's what he's saying, and that's why this parallelism is so important. So that we get the emphasis on the right thing, which is often overlooked when people study this portion of Scripture. Modesty, the Greek word modesty, is, has the idea of, of respectable, honorable, virtuous. In the vernacular of our day, we might use the word, she dresses with class, or she is looking sharp. But just to make sure we get his point, he adds something else. He says, and with propriety. The word has the idea of moral conviction for the convictions and opinions of others or of violating one's own con conscience, of shrinking from anything unbecoming, afraid of what others might think or be ashamed. Fifty years ago, women like my grandmother wouldn't have been caught dead wearing anything but a nice dress to church. Why? They had the moral conviction for the conviction and opinions of others at church as well as for their own conscience. They were afraid of offending others or causing grief or even of being ashamed of themselves. And this is exactly what Paul meant by this word with all propriety. Now, times have changed, and I am not at all suggesting that women have to wear dresses to church to be proper. This is a different culture, a different part of the world. However, Paul is saying that she, the woman here, needs to have moral conviction of what is right and proper in the light of the culture in which she finds herself. And this is something that constantly has to be reevaluated. Paul adds one more word to make clear what he is saying. He says, moderation. The word moderation there means good sense, good common sense. A lot of people lack that today. Some people who seem to have an axe to grind or a statement to make don't use good common sense in how they present themselves before God and His people. Paul urges women in particular to use good common sense. But Paul, you can hear some women saying, just as I hear maybe some of you saying, how does this translate into our culture? Tell us what you're practically driving at. You know, get down to the nuts and bolts of this thing. Where are we going to go? Where are we going wrong here, Paul? Where are we failing to dress modestly with propriety and good sense? Take it from a preacher. If there's one thing that will send women into a tizzy, it is insinuating that their appearance 
is less than it should be. I've gotten in trouble with that on a number of occasions with some who perhaps needed a gentle rebuke and didn't take it gently. So Paul translates just what he's saying into our culture of the day with these words. And this is the culture of his day. Not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. Now we, we look at that and think, what are he talking about there? But they would have known exactly what he's talking about. You see, there's good evidence, a large body of evidence, that suggests that braided hair, gold, pearls, and costly clothing were the mode of dress for courtesans. A courtesan was a call girl in that day. A call girl or a harlot in our culture. Furthermore, in Paul's culture, the time, effort, and expense involved in achieving such a look was extravagant. An ostentatious display in a simple culture in which there were basically two classes, rich and poor, slave and free, and most of the Christians came from the poorer class. In our culture, a woman could have her hair done, put on a nice dress, a nice strand of pearls, some gold-plated earrings, and few, if anyone, would think it is ostentatious or unusual or out of order or even extravagant. Paul's point is not to insist that women could never wear a strand of pearls and be proper any more than men have to lift up their hands to pray to God. He was simply translating what he was saying, the principle he was laying down, into the culture of his day. And underlining his point, for men, the, for men, the key word is holy. For women, the key word is modesty. And they are related. How do we translate what Paul is saying into our culture? First, women, and specifically daughters, because I believe mom would like me to speak to daughters today as much as to women in general. Do not be overly consumed with how you look or what you wear. Too much time and money and energy in the matter of dress is not pleasing to God. What is too much? Women and daughters, you know better than I what is too much. And you could illustrate this point far better than I could. But certainly there is nothing wrong with some time and energy being spent on a woman's appearance. After all, God made a woman to be beautiful. And there's nothing wrong with spending some time on that. But there is a point at which too much time and energy and expense is used to adorn an outward appearance that is passing away, as opposing to adorning the inner person which will last forever. We need to all think about that, women. Second, do not wear revealing clothes. Do not try to create a look that is sensual and provocative. Don't wear clothes that look like you spent the night out walking Harbor Boulevard. Don't spend your time trying to look like Britney Spears or some other pop diva or Hollywood icon or teen idol. Even Men's Health, a godless magazine, ran an article on you can tell a lot by what a woman wears. Now their goals were different than mine. But I was interested in the article because it was going to speak to a subject I'm speaking about today, obviously. It says if she shows a lot of skin, this is what it was telling the man, if she shows a lot of skin, it means she's insecure and wants to be noticed. 
And in that magazine, men are expected to have ulterior motives. And so if you want to achieve your ulterior motives, pay a lot of attention to her because she wants attention because she's showing a lot of skin. And then you will get what you want. Now that ought to ring some bells for some of our younger women and begin to think about some of these things. Women who dress, dress sensually or suggestively will be noticed for sure. Men will fantasize about spending the night with you, but they will not fantasize about marrying you. And there's a huge difference. Sadly, I think some Christian women just don't get it. Men and other women do not respect a woman that reveals herself or that tries to dress in a suggestive manner. When I was growing up, I had an aunt. We called her Aunt B. And she was a piece of work. You could hear her coming. She had on these flop-flop high heel shoes in that day, and they'd slap the bottom of her feet, and you'd hear her walking through the room. And when you'd take a look at her, she'd had the lipstick painted on, and she had earrings dangling down to her shoulders, and looked like made it up like a painted barn. And I mean, it was a dis- it was in. Embarrassing. I called her the floozy. And my folks would correct me. They said, don't you call your aunt that. Well, it's true. <laughs> and they'd say, well, don't you say it and think it. And when she'd come into the house, and I had some friends in the house, I would scurry them out of the door. I didn't want them to see her. It was an embarrassment. My folks were correct to correct me, and I know now, I mean, I remember one time I sat down with her, and, and she was talking, and, I, and she was talking about some spiritual things, and I was a little taken back, and I said, well, if you were to die tonight and go to heaven, I mean, stand before God, and God were to say, why well, should I let you into heaven, what would you say? She says, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior. I said, oh, I was expecting another answer, because I didn't expect to see her in heaven, but in this case, I think I probably will. So, I'll probably have to ask her to forgive me for my attitude and for not being more gracious. But, on the other hand, her dress needed an overhaul in a big way. Yes, you can be popular by dressing sexy. By wearing thongs and bearing your midriff and showing a lot of cleavage. And yes, many men and boys will dream of sleeping with you. But again, they will not dream of marrying you. And the men and boys with class will have nothing to do with you. Honestly, I feel for the mother that is doing everything she can to yank her daughter's chain and to get her to wake up and see what kind of message she is sending by what she wears and the way she wears it. I want to assure you, Mom, you have my support as a pastor. You have the support of our elder board, because we've talked about this in regards to a few situations that have developed in the church. You have the support of the church at large. And hopefully you have the support of your husband. You need to go ahead and take that stand against the sensual and provocative things kids today want to wear. And I know that they're going to go to school. I remember my, my sister, she, my mom, they'd have a big battle. And she'd walk out the door with a skirt down to here. And as soon as she got to school, she'd roll it up so it'd be above her legs, legs I guess. I mean, that was in the, the stylish thing to do. So you can't control them all the time. But you need to keep at it and persist in it. And it's not easy to keep doing battle 
But you go through that time in their life when they just are going to be, have to be forced to comply until your daughter gets through this age of foolishness. Because that's all it is. And she will one day thank you for helping her through it. Sensuality and pro- provocative dress is especially troubling when it, when it happens to a married woman that has no taste or class. You just can't help but be embarrassed for her husband and her family. And that's happened very few times in our church, but there have been a couple times. I can recall the guys saying to themselves, just shaking their head, walking away, you know, why doesn't she see what she's looking like? It's embarrassing. Pastor, are you perverted or what? Saying all these things. Women, be on notice. Most men and women see things. They just don't politely tell you about it. My wife and I will be walking down the street and she will say to me, Did you see that? Oh, no, I didn't see nothing. (laughs) That woman, did you see what she... She didn't have hardly anything on. That's embarrassing. Oh, really? (laughs) In any case, we see things. And we're trying to be polite in our culture and not call it to your attention, but believe me, People watch you and they look at you. You'll be amazed at the number of men that have come to me and asked me privately, did I notice what so-and-so was wearing to church? Or not wearing, as usually the case is. And how it is a problem for us men and when am I going to do something about it? Or the women who come to me and say, we've got a problem here, when are you going to do something about it? And I'm wondering, why is this all coming down on my shoulders? I am the pastor and occasionally I can preach a message like this. But that isn't going to be really the cure-all. The women of the church need to step up and take charge and do some things to really instruct the older women need to instruct the younger women in how to dress. And they need to support each other. If you see a young girl that's, that's inappropriately dressed and it's not your daughter, that doesn't mean you can't speak up. Maybe she needs to hear it from you. Mom, maybe she isn't your daughter, but she can still be profited from you. Women need to teach the younger women. That's a clear biblical principle, and I think it's a a good one. I can only go so far, and honestly, this kind of a message is one that I wouldn't preach, but maybe every, every five or six years, anyhow, it's a dangerous one. Women, you may think, well, this is awfully negative, I wonder if there's anything positive that can be said. Our God says dress with with modesty, propriety, and good sense. That doesn't mean you have to wear a burqa. It doesn't mean you have to look like an old hag. What it means is that you cover well the sensual parts of your body. They are for you and your husband to enjoy. Instead, in your dress, you need to focus on what the Bible calls your glory. Do you know what that is, women? That's your hair. And that beautiful face that surrounds, that your hair surrounds. That's what you should work at. Make that look attractive as much as you can. To me, that's the kind of emphasis that should be given to a woman's body. On the other hand, we need to remember that that body is passing away. It's the inner person that will continue to last. How do you know when you are dressing with modesty and propriety and good sense? Ask your mother. Ask your husband. 
also consider this. When I was a young man, I got some counsel from, from a pastor. And he said, whenever you are looking, because we were in a large church and there were a lot of women that dressed inappropriately. He says, whenever you're looking at a woman who's dressed provocatively, look her in the eyes. Don't look away for a second. Now, a normal conversation, when you have a conversation with somebody, you look them in the eyes and you look around you, because you want the conversation to be relaxed, because it's tense when somebody just stares you in the eye. But in this case, if she's dressing provocatively, don't take your eyes off her eyes. Keep your eyes on her eyes. Now, here's a way, women, you can tell if you're dressing in a provocative or immodest way essential way if a man of questionable motives seldom looks at your eyes but spends more time looking at other parts of your anatomy you know you're dressing provocatively it's not you can blame him yes but more importantly blame yourself and if a godly man can't look anywhere but in your eyes and the conversation is be stiff because you can't get his eyes off your eyes that's to send an identical signal to you you're dressing provocatively. We spent a lot of time talking about how to dress and how not to dress. It is symptomatic of our day in which we are caught up in creating just the right look, the look that makes a statement, the look that is me, the, the look that wins the approval of my friends, the, the look that, will, that I, will cost a lot of time and money and energy trying to capture that right look. What a contrast to the woman who wants to please and honor God. Listen to Paul's final words as he closes his comments on a woman's adornment. He says, But which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. It may have sounded like Paul was really very, really particular about what a woman wore, but in reality he was going somewhere with this whole exhortation. He was saying really what I want a woman to be thinking about is her good works. What specifically were... What specifically were to wear except for one thing that must adorn themselves, and that is good works. This is where a woman needs to put her energy and her time and her money. In the New Testament, we're frequently exalted. Certain women were frequently singled out and exalted for praise and adoration for their good works. Phoebe was a consoler of many in Romans 16. Lydia manifested Christian hospitality. In Acts 16, Dorcas dedicated her sewing talents to the relieving of the needy in Acts 9. Christian women should be praised not for being the best-dressed woman in the church, but for her example of good works, which testify of the grace of God at work in her life. Hollywood provides us with a lot of glamorous women to look at, but it is also well known that they're short on substance for the most part. Over the years, I've talked with many young men who wanted to find a godly wife. How do they go about it? And I've always come back to telling them this, that as I've looked over 30 years of ministry and I've conducted a lot of marriages between some beautiful couples, I found that as I listened to how they came to fall in love and get married, that in many, many cases, it was because they met each other as they were serving the Lord. It wasn't at a hot singles group where some people come with nefarious motives and exploit people. 
But it was rather because two people got involved, maybe in a church like ours, where they're serving in Awana, they're serving in Sunday school, or they're serving in other capacities, and they just meet up with each other. No intention of finding somebody that way, but that's the way God often works. When you get, when you're doing those good works and you're both doing them because you're committed to Christ, what the best way to find somebody, to meet somebody, is in that context. My own personal life, and I, I just want to share this very briefly, but when I was in my first two years of college, I was obviously starting as a young man to think about marriage and wanting to find the right girl, and I dated a lot of girls. And I recall one girl I dated that, uh, you know, she was a real pretty girl, but you could just tell she was a controlling personality, and I got, eh, I'm tired of that nonsense. And then I went out with a, a gal that was a runner-up in the Miss Ohio contest. And we spent time looking at pictures and talking about how great she looked and how beautiful she was. And that took about a night to get used to that, and after that I couldn't survive. So I went on from that one. Dated another girl, finally, that I enjoyed being around. She's a really fun girl, but she didn't have any use for God in her life. And she knew I was a strong Christian. But I liked her. I mean, she was a fun girl. And by just being around each other, we got involved a little bit in terms of dating. Nothing immoral. But she was one that probably would have given Britney Spears a run for her money in the way she dressed. And it was a little bit embarrassing to me as a believer. And the final blow came when one older man said to me... Uh, knowing I was a Christian. He says, Hey, Archie, if you can't handle that, I can. I mean, that was what the signal she was sending out. And I thought, No, I don't want anything to do with this. I'm out of here. Finally, I set my heart about looking at, well, maybe what, what I needed was to find a, a godly girl is what I really wanted. I didn't know much about what a godly girl was like. But I thought, well, I'm going to get involved. Somebody said this organization called Campus Crusade for Christ is a good, a good organization that has good doctrine. I'm going to go. With that. Went up there and started being involved. And Of course, I'm looking around too. Let's see what kind of girls they have there. Dan would relate with that, right, Dan? And... Um, and then uh, one particular girl caught my eyes. And I found out that she was one of the staff leaders. Uh, oh, because I was told that staff and students aren't supposed to date. I thought, well, this is interesting. Well, anyhow, I made the overture to try to get to know her. And I really liked this girl. She was really pretty. And she was uh, just seemed to have a heart for God like nobody's business. So I thought, well, I'm going to take the chance. I'm going to ask her out for a date. And I did. She said, yes. It took for persuasion, I'll tell you that. But she said yes, and the rest is history. I married Carolyn. Beautiful woman. Our Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross to make us beautiful. Not only to God, but to each other. He died to take away our sin and to take away the inner ugliness in our life and to replace that inner ugliness with an inner beauty an inner beauty that's irresistible 
We all, men and women, need to work less on holding on to that which is passing away. Because when you get to my age, it's really passing away. But there's an inner beauty here that I didn't have, that my wife didn't have even when we met, when we were 25 years old, 20 years old. Mom, hang in there. You have our support. And more importantly, you have the support of God. Proverbs 29 says this, The rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself or herself brings shame to his or her mother. Father, help us as we take hold of this truth and this scripture and what you would have for us today to be stronger as mothers, as fathers, as daughters, as sons, that the family may be a strong family in love with the Lord Jesus, making up the church family that is made up of people who are strongly committed and in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. If you can stand, get out your hymnals to number 17, new hymnals, no pencil marks. We're going to sing our great Savior. We're going to do verses 1 and 2.